For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. So we've been studying through the book of John. We spent two weeks on chapter one. We're on chapter two this week. And what we've been explaining is, is that the idea of a gospel like this, it's to show us that Jesus is God. One of John's major Uh, desires in writing this book is to help us understand he was there. He was an eyewitness. He spent, you know, he didn't just see Jesus teaching in a crowd and was like, wow, this guy's amazing. He didn't just see a miracle or two and come to these conclusions. He was a close, personal friend involved deeply in Jesus's life for years. And he is saying, look, you have to understand that this is the promise of the Old Testament. This is the fulfillment of God's promise to come and literally dwell among his people. And I saw it. And when you look at who Jesus Christ is, you're looking at the nature and the character of your creator. And so you can read this testimony. And it's one of the absolute best ways to understand who God is is by looking at how he lives and how he interacts when he is in a human situation where he literally has taken on a body that is frail and weak. He's exposed himself to not only the the craziness and the elements of nature, but also of human free will. And he bears the consequences of other people's choices. You know, what do we think about when we think about God? You know, what are the images in our mind? You know, this is probably one of the most famous images on who God is. It's from the Sistine Chapel. And it's like, does that look like a nice man? You know, you look at that and you're like, okay, God is powerful. God is big. God is great. But is that somebody you want to be close to? You know, uh, Monty Python is always a good source, you know, when we think about the images of God, the, the character of God, the nature of God, you know, it's like, that's not somebody you want to talk to on a regular basis. You know, do you want that dwelling in your heart? You know, it's, it's not an attractive picture. Or sometimes we get the other extreme. We get super lammy Jesus, you know, where it's like, you know, uh, I, don't even know as, as, I don't even know what to think when I see that. You know, I just, I just think... That's not somebody that I really want to get to know either, probably. It's not attractive. It's not, you know, this picture of, you know, think about when you, if you just go out on the street and you just talk to people and you say, what is God like? People who have never read the Bible, people who have no idea, like, what's the, what's the view of God, the God of the Bible that, that's out there? And it's overwhelmingly negative, especially in our culture. And why is that? Who is the picture of of who God is? And so as we get into this and we start getting into the actual ministry of Jesus Christ, this is the first miracle that he does. This is like his entrance into the stage. It's like he's been on earth. He's been living. He's been a carpenter. He's 30 years old. He's been around. But he is now starting to actively engage in the heart of the work that he has come to do. And the miracles are sort of, uh, they're to help people, they're to encourage people, but they also serve a purpose, which is to confirm to people that we're dealing with somebody here that is not just a man, that would communicate the values of God, the heart of God, the character of God, 
the power of God. And when we look at how Jesus decides to enter into, to, to make his entrance, right? To step out on the stage and what his first impression will be, we see that this miracle is actually quite humble. It's quiet. It's just not the way, the opening act of Jesus' ministry is not the way that we would be. Now when John tells this this story of Jesus doing the miracle, he ends it here, and this is really the point that he's making with all of these miracles as he describes them. It says John in John 2.11, this beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. What he's saying is, is I'm telling you this story about this miracle because it shows you how great God is. That's John's whole point. Look at Jesus in action. Look at what he does. Look at how he is not like us. And as we look at this miracle, we should think, you know, what would the human thing to do, right? I mean, what would we do if we were God and we were going to step out on the scene and, and make a, you know, we'd want to land with like a, a big thundering boom, right? We would want to, you know, have some kind of great entrance, fly in from the sky like Superman, raise someone from the dead, Something spectacular. You never get a second chance at a first impression, right? And so, you know, we would tend to think that, uh, you know, if if God's going to be like, okay, I want the whole world to see what I'm doing and I want the whole world to see what I am, it would be this flashy, powerful demonstration. And yet, that's not who God is. That's not what God's like. Yes, he can do that, and he does do that, but when God decides to, be, to, to send the message that he's engaging in this ministry, it looks surprisingly different. So we turn to John chapter 2, and we start in verse 1, and we read, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Now, you know, that's weird. (laughs) There's a lot of weird things, you know, to look at there. And part of it is, is we have to bridge the cultural gap between where we are in our culture and understanding where they are in their culture. First of all, a wedding in the ancient world is not like a wedding today. You know, this is the ancient world. Entertainment sources were few. You know, we, can, we have so many ways of being entertained, right? The, the, the most high-tech form of entertainment they had was a campfire, right? Be watching it, and that's pretty mesmerizing. But that was it, right? These were agrarian people that had to work, you know, every day to ensure that they had enough food for their family, Uh, This was not a culture that was so inundated with entertainment. But when there was a wedding, it was like a great celebration. It would last days. These parties, you know, would be, the point of it was to bring, the, the whole village would turn out and everybody would be celebrating and throwing this party. When it says that the wine ran out, this is actually a really big deal. You know, if you want to throw a good party, if you're a good host, you know, you want to, communicate to people your generosity and, you know, having some, some good wine, some good libation at the party was a part of creating the festive atmosphere that you would want there. And if the wine ran out in the middle of the party, that could be something that would be very embarrassing to the host. 
that would really uh, affect, you know, people's sense of, you know, their generosity. And so when this happens, Mary, Jesus' mother, turns to him and says, hey, Jesus, I noticed they don't have, the, the wine's gone. This is a problem. You know, and Jesus isn't the host of the wedding. He's just an invitee. He's just there. And he turns to her and says, woman, what does that have to do with us? And that to our ears sounds like, Jesus is not nice to his mom. <laughs> I don't recommend husbands do this, you know, like when the wife says, we take out the garbage. And you're like, woman, what does that have to do with me? <laughs> not a recommendation. But Jesus said it, right? First of all, the term here, woman, gune, this is, a, this is actually a term of respect. This is a way of, of addressing her formally in a respectful way. Uh, it doesn't come across that way in the translation, but it is. It's saying, he's saying, you know, it's like, dear mother would be a, a more accurate translation of, of this, the spirit of what Jesus is saying here. And what he's saying is, he basically, I think he's saying, look, mom, what are you trying to accomplish here? Because she knows, why is Mary turning to Jesus? Because she knows who he is. She's known her whole life. She knew before he was born, you know, the angel came to her and said, this is going to be the Messiah. She's watched him grow. I mean, she's in this incredible place where you want to learn about God. You want to get close to God. Try being his mom. Try cradling him in your arms as an infant and then watching him as a toddler. I mean, what? They say Mary is blessed among women. Why? Well, the real reason is because she got to play such an incredible role of closeness. To see, she had the literal front row seat for the picture that God was trying to paint here. And she knows that Jesus can do something about this. She knows that. And he's like, yeah, but I don't, it's not time, mom. Not yet. And her response uh, is hilarious. It's like a lot of moms. It's like she just assumes that she, he's going to obey and do what she said. <laughs> Which is also interesting. We have, I think, God demonstrating here the importance of honoring your mother and your father. So Mary just ignores him and says to the servants at the thing, he's going to fix this. And he does. So he says, whatever he says, do it. Now, there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Now, these pots were there, and it was a part of, it's, it's important to understand the wording here. He says, the Jewish custom. This was a ritual washing that was not in the Old Testament. It was not something that God told them to do. It was something that they added on. And what they would do is they, they didn't have a sense of, you know, germs you know, and, and illnesses like that, you know, they, they knew that people got sick, but they didn't really understand why. So washing didn't have to do with, you know, cleaning away the germs. Washing for them had to do with sin to them was like cooties. You know, and they thought, you know, if you went out in the world, what if you shook the hand of somebody who was a big sinner and you didn't even know it? You could have sin all over you. And then you grab food and shove it in your mouth, and now the sin's in your mouth. And so this was a way that they designed to where you could look very concerned about being pure. And so there was a little tiny, there was a giant 
water jug in a little tiny cup, and you would pour it like a surgeon prepping for surgery, and you could be washing the sin off your hands so it doesn't get in your mouth. Kind of a silly thing, but this was a part of their culture and their custom. And Jesus says, hey, you know the sin washing barrels? Fill them to the top. So they fill the water pots with water to the brim, and he says to them, draw out some of the water and take it to the head waiter. So they take it to the guy in charge of the wine, and the head waiter tastes the water, which had become wine, and he didn't know where it came from. You know, this guy's in a desperate situation. He's in charge of the hospitality. He thinks he's run out of wine, and they bring him this wine, and he's like, where did this come from? He says, but the servants knew who had drawn the water. They knew what was going on. So the head waiter calls the bridegroom in, and he says, you know that wine problem we just talked about? You know, I don't know what we were going to do, but they just brought me a whole bunch of wine. And you're supposed to serve the good wine first. You're supposed to, you know, early on you serve the good wine, and then when people have had enough, then you start bringing out the rock gut so you can be cheap. But you've had this reserve of fantastic wine here, and you're bringing it out late. When people have drugged freely, he says, then he serves the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. And so we get cued in on what this is. And this is a point of controversy, which should not be a point of controversy, okay? You know, people look at this and they're like, well, you know, God is against drunkenness, and that is absolutely true. The Bible says don't get drunk. But that does not mean that God is against wine or God is against alcohol, this was wine. You know, people say, well, it must have been grape juice because why would God bring a whole bunch of wine in a situation where people might abuse it? And it's like, yeah, that is probably, it probably did happen in this situation, but that doesn't mean that that's why God brought it in. This is wine. This is a party. The wine ran out, and Jesus made a whole bunch of wine to keep the party going, and it was good wine. It was better than the wine they were drinking before. John said that this manifests God's glory to us in some way. How does that work? This is the beginning of his signs. Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested God's glory and his disciples believed in him. We saw more of the greatness of who God is in this story. And John included it here because he wanted us to know who God is. How does that work? Well, the point is, is that this is not the God that you expect, right? This is not the God that, you know, we're told about. This is not the God that if you've never read the Bible, if you've never understood true biblical teaching, that you would think, oh, well, this is just what God's like. He shows up at a party and he makes it better. That's not who he is. What people expect is that God hates fun. That God looks out and he says, oh, you know, people are, are partying? Well, that has to stop. I like to be solemn and stern, and I like my people to be grumpy and disconnected. This, you know, they need to put on robes and go into a dark corner and pray all day. Not party all day. That's what we expect God to be like. But what we see is Jesus comes on the scene and he's beginning his ministry at the biggest party there is. He's right there in the middle of it. 
celebrating, rejoicing, and having fun with the people that he came to live among. God didn't come to dwell among us and go walk into the desert and live in a cave and live this existence separated from people because he had to be so separate and so holy. He came right down into the mix and he was a part of the culture. He was a part of the celebration. He was where the people were and he was into having fun. We think of God as being full of himself, you know, that he's like pompous and and self-righteous and arrogant and, you know, he just wants people to bow to him all the time. And yet, he enters the scene in this small way. Only a few people know what's happening. He's not interested in, in creating this grand, you know, entrance. He sees a need. He's present. He sees something going on and he sees a way to interact, and he chooses to do that at his mother's encouragement. We think of God as God who wants to stop others from having fun, but the point of this whole miracle is to keep the party going, is to engage people into celebrating and enjoying their fellowship, their connection as a community. We think that God uses a lot of shame, that God wants to guilt us, and God wants to make us feel bad, and that God's favorite way to make people do things is to threaten them or or to, to make them feel terrible, right? But what God actually does when we actually see God in action here, what does he do is he's protecting the host from shame. This would have been a very socially embarrassing situation for the host of this, of this wedding, and he comes in, Mary says, look, this is bad. Let's do something about this. And Jesus says, okay. We don't want our friend, our neighbor. This would have been a friend who had invited him to a wedding. And he protects them from embarrassment and shame. We think that God makes fun stuff boring, but the entire point of the miracle is to elevate the celebration. And we think that God loves a bunch of weird, stuffy rituals like pouring little things on our hand before we eat so we don't eat the sin. We think that God loves that kind of stuff. He wants to make it weird and dark and, you know, and, uh, and stuffy. Yet the, what happens actually is when God sees like stuff that's like that going on that's man-made, he goes out of his way to destroy it and make it look stupid. Do you understand what it meant? To the people, they could no longer wash their hands, but they could drink good wine. He's very intentional about revealing who he is and what his values are here. And those things, as we see them, as we see them develop, as we see them manifest, they are different than what we expect. They are not the God that we have been told about. But this is the God who is. Now, I'm not painting a picture here. I'm not saying, you know, God's like, you know, let's throw a raging kegger and, you know, I'll get hammered, right? That's not the point. The point, though, is that God is a God who engages people, who enjoys people, who protects people, and who wants people to have joy. That's who he is. And so I think, you know, we should think about what should be done about this. This is a totally different picture of who God is than what so many people have. 
So many people in your life have no idea what God is really like. And if you think God is mean and stuffy and weird and all of this, you know, this is so easy. This is the default picture in our culture of what to expect when you think of the God of the Bible. And if you think that's who God is, all I can say is you really should meet him. You need, to, you need to meet him. John 1.12 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. That God, the real God, the God of love, the God of mercy, who is also a just God and a righteous God, wants to know you and wants to move into your life, and he wants to bring joy, he wants to bring love, he wants to bring purpose, he wants to bring community, he wants to bring wholeness into your life. Because he loves you and he created you for the purpose of having a relationship with him and other people. I think another thing that we could take away from this is we need to be aware of asceticism. Asceticism is the idea that, you know, you have to punish yourself for your sins. And, you know, uh, the, the whole idea of like medieval monks throwing themselves down flights of stairs or flogging themselves or wearing hair shirts. You know, that idea was I have my flesh is corrupt and I need to punish my flesh in order to make it obedient to God. That's not the picture of who God is. I remember as a, as a younger believer, you know, I, uh, I'd been walking with God for three or four years, and before I became a Christian, you know, probably the, the most important thing in my life was chasing girls, and that was what I was about. And I came to Christ when I was 18, and I, I didn't date for three or four years because I just knew that that was a spot where I'd get in trouble, and i cause pain and, and damage, and I just don't want to do that. So I tried to walk with God, and, and I tried to have friendships, but just not date. And about four years in, I started really becoming attracted to this woman and thinking about dating her, and it terrified me. Because I was like, I don't know how to date as a Christian in a God way. What I know is, I know is bad. But I'm afraid of how to do, how do I do this well? How do I do this right? How do I bring God into this? And I was talking to a guy who mentored me at the time, and I was like, man, I'm really struggling. I'm thinking about dating this girl. It turned out it was also his daughter. <laughs> it's complicated. <laughs> and he knew my history. He knew my fears. He knew where I was coming from. And this was his daughter. And he said, you know, why do you think it's bad that you want to do this? She's a godly woman. She's walking with God. She's engaged with service and ministry. And I was like... I just know that if I want it, it's bad. And he was like, that's asceticism. You have to be careful because God wants good things for you. And he brought me to this section in Luke, Luke 11, 11 through 13, where Jesus is teaching on this topic. And he says, now suppose one of your fathers is asked by a son for a fish. He won't give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he is asked for an egg, he won't give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And this is a profound and important argument because we get caught up in this all the time. 
Yes, we want to give good things to our children more than anything else. But we think God wants to give scorpions and snakes to his children. And we're evil and he's good. How much more God being good wants good things for his children. That's the point. And so when we think of God as, you know, suspiciously or the angry, judging, you know, self-righteous, stuffy God, and we think about drawing close to him and and having a personal relationship with him and inviting him into our lives for his spirit to dwell inside of us, and we have this distrust, it manifests, it reveals the problem. We're very suspicious that God is not good. And it begins to make sense, I think, why John started this picture of who God is and this story of Jesus' ministry with something like this because it flies in the face of everything we expect God to be, which, by the way, is a huge theme in Jesus' life. He flies in the face of everything we expect God to be. It's why they killed him because they wanted God to be something that, that was according to their image, and he wasn't. He isn't. So we should watch out when we expect bad things from God because we don't trust him. We're buying into a picture of God that is actually propagated, formulated by the enemies of God. And it would make sense why they would do that. They don't want you to understand how good God is, how loving God is, how great he is, how much joy he wants to bring into your life. They want you to see the grumpy old man who hates fun because they know that strikes at the heart of, like, who wants to be close to that? We can and we should trust that God is good and he wants good things for us. Look at the person and life of Jesus Christ. All of Scripture says that is the highest form of revelation, meaning it's the most accurate picture ever given to us of the nature and character of God. It reveals who God is. We should be aware of man's false picture of God, rituals that are not in the Bible. You know, we seem to want to add things on and make things more complicated, and in doing so, we often harm people's picture and idea of God, and often this is well-intended. I made reference to the whole water into wine thing where I said, well, it's grape juice. Where does that come from? It comes from the idea that alcohol, if you drink too much of it, can kill you, ruin your life, cause you to kill others. Being drunk is really bad for you. And alcohol can become addicting. And many people's lives have been ruined by alcohol addiction. So we say, well, just, you know, God says it's okay to drink wine that wine makes the hearts of men merry. But we say, you know what? If we even dabble a little bit, people will go overboard. So we should just, you know, tell people drinking wine or drinking any alcohol is sin. It's bad. And good, godly people don't do it. And then we're forced into things like crazy interpretations of John chapter 2 to try to form God into our image to make him who we want him to be. And it's well-intended, right? We're trying to keep people away from harm, but in doing so, we change the picture of who God really is. And there are many examples of this. 
Many places you can go, many churches you can go where you will see there is so much added on to who God is that the picture of God has been fundamentally changed from the truth. And so we should stick with Scripture and what Scripture says. And anything that's added on to that, we should scrutinize very heavily from the standpoint of does this paint a wrong picture of who God is? When God is painted as this dry, boring, impersonal being, we should be very suspicious of that picture because that is not who you see in the Bible. When we see God painted and Christianity painted as with an emphasis on defining God by what he doesn't want us to do, that's what so many people in your life so many of your neighbors, your family members, and your coworkers, when they think about God, they think, he's the God that doesn't want me to be bad. He doesn't want me to have sex before I'm married. He doesn't want me to drink. He doesn't want me to go to bars. He doesn't want me to play cards. He doesn't want me to dance. He doesn't want me to gamble. He wants me to be sullen and show up for an hour every Sunday morning and listen to some fool drone on. That's what God wants. And that's the picture that they have, painted by the enemies of God. You'd be surprised how this can creep in. You know, a lot of us here, you know, look around the room. Does this look like a real formal group of people, right? And we say, yeah, man, we're Xenos, right? We don't get into this. We define ourselves by not being that. And we're never legalistic because, you know, we don't follow all those things. And we're, we're, we're way more biblically centered. And that will never happen here. But the problem is, is the world system is also a legalistic system. We have the, the legalism of the church telling people what they can and can't do and threatening to punish them if they don't do right. But what does the world say? The world says, do right, do what we say, have the values that we say, and you will be rewarded with success. Make bad choices and you will fail and you will be punished by society. That's a legalistic system. So whether you were raised in the church or whether you weren't raised in the church, you are likely to have a bent towards viewing things through this legalistic grid. God will reward me if I do good things and God will punish me if I do bad things. So I live in fear that if I'm suffering, that for some reason God is judging me. And that's just not the biblical picture. We live in a fallen world where we can do all the right things. You know, the entire book of Job is describing the most righteous man on earth and the most horrible things happen to him and the two things are not connected. We live in a broken, fallen environment and good things happen to us. Good things happen to bad people. And bad things happen to good people because the world is not just. And God has a plan to take care of that. He is going to set that right. But in the meantime, what we do is we draw near to him and we look to him for comfort when we suffer. We try to be used by him in the lives of other people to help them in their times of suffering, in their times of injustice. And we need to paint an accurate picture of who God is. 1 John 4, 8 says, The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. That's the defining characteristic of who he is. That's the whole picture. There were one word that we could use 
to define who God is, the Bible says that word's love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. What a fantastic argument. While we stood and we shook our fists at God and we rebelled against him and we painted this terrible picture of who he is and while we turned our evil against one another, God came and weighed into the midst of that in the person of Jesus Christ and showed us what real love is. And then he turns to us once we finally understand that and says, will you join me in giving this love to others? And that's what it is to be a part of the family of God. How many people in your life don't know that? How many people do you come in contact with every day that have no idea? And I know what you think. I think the same thing where it's like, yeah, but if I even start to have the conversation, the whole grumpy God thing comes in. And, you know, it's hard to get over that hump. People have such a negative presupposition. You know, I'm like, have you heard of Jesus Christ? And it's like, ah! You know, that's like a bomb going off in a room. You say that name, Jesus Christ. And it's scary and it's hard. But we all do it. We all have so many people in our lives. And how important is it that we risk showing them something different, showing them the accurate picture? This is what John is trying to do. John is saying, you guys, this is who God is. And people need to know that. And for some reason, God's primary way of setting the record straight, his strategy for doing that is you and me. His ambassadors. We're supposed to go and be the answer to this horrible picture that has been painted of who he is. Are we doing a good job? That's a, hard, that's a hard truth to face. But we can't let that stop us because he is too good and this is too important. And part of how we can go is we can go and be honest about our failings. We can apologize when we hurt people. We can own the fact that we are still sinners. And we can demonstrate God's love through us by being real about the things that we struggle with. People in our culture are starving for something real, something authentic. And what's real and authentic is not a perfect person. Nobody is that except for Jesus Christ. But what's real and authentic is moving into people's lives and having the courage to be honest with them, to share with them, to love them and to forgive them and to apologize when we mess up. How will people know who God really is if we aren't willing to share with them? That's what I've got from John chapter 2. Why don't we pray? God, we are so grateful that you're not what we expect. We're so grateful that you are so much greater and more loving and giving and generous and kind and patient that you have withstood so much 
and you have given so much. We thank you also that you are just, that you are good, that you're righteous, and that you are going to set things right, that we can take every confidence in knowing that evil will be destroyed and victory will live on in eternity with you. We just pray, God, for the people in our lives who have this wrong picture, this wrong understanding. We pray that you'll illuminate for us the opportunities throughout the week that we have to even just chip away in some small way people's wrong thinking about you with acts of kindness and love and truth. In Jesus' name, amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.